So good to be together in God's presence. Welcome back for those who've been away for the uh, vacation. I know some students are back. I know there's some students who were hoping to be back today. I'm certainly one who I was supposed to pick up from the airport yesterday and their flight got cancelled, so uh, still in Toronto. But people are on their way back and uh, it's good to gather together as God's people, as his church and to worship God. And uh, what, a, what a great time of worship this morning. And I do feel it led in, uh, leads in really well to what I'm going to preach today. So uh, let's uh, open our ears, let's open our hearts and listen with faith as we look at, uh, at the Gospel of Mark. If you've got a Bible, you might want to turn to Mark's Gospel. Uh, we're in chapter 9. We've been going through this uh, Gospel for a year now. I started it in January last year, and we're halfway through. So uh, <laughs> we're right at the transition point in chapter 9. So here we go. So uh, up until now, what's happened is uh, there's been really a lot of ministry of Jesus and things that he's been doing. And the big question has been, who is this man? Who is Jesus? Uh, that's been going all the way through the gospel. And just uh, the last passage I preached, probably right at the back of the start of, January, of December, um, Jesus asked his disciples, well, who are people saying that I am? And there was all sorts of answers to that, John the Baptist, Elijah, uh, and then Jesus said to his disciples, well, who do you say I am? And at that point, Peter said, well, you're the Messiah. And suddenly it comes as a revelation to them. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who has been expected for many, many years. And uh, Peter, Jesus says, yes, that's right. And then he starts to explain um, what the Messiah uh, will do. And uh, that's the, the, the focus then switches, and that's what's happened really at this point. The focus switches, and now Jesus is starting to talk about um, what will happen to the Messiah. And he says, you know, um, the, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, um, be killed, three days later rise again. And, and then they're like, whoa, what, what are we talking about here? This is strange. This isn't what we thought the Messiah would be like at all. So we're going to pick it up from there, um, and we're going to read from the start of chapter 1, chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. That's the last bit of the last section, but it, I'll read it because it's relevant. Then it says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain when they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept matters to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, well, why do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they've done everything to them they wished, just as it is written about him. 
All right. So the reason I read the first verse, some people, which goes back and says, Jesus saying, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God is coming with power. Well, some people take that verse as meaning Jesus is talking about when he returns. And they're saying, well, actually, and then some people say, well, Jesus must have got it wrong because he's not returned yet. He's not come back yet. He must have got it wrong. Well, it, he wasn't meaning that. Some people think that he was talking about uh, the day of Pentecost, the rapid growth of the church. That's actually pretty likely that that is what he was referring to. I said that last time. Um, you know, the, the kingdom of God did come in power. The church has grown. Two billion people profess to be Christians on the face of the earth today. The kingdom of God is coming and is advancing and is still to finish off coming, completely come in power. But they've People have saw that before they died. But some uh, would say, well, he's actually talking about what is happening in this very next passage, the transfiguration. And that could be as well. It could well be that this, pa this next passage is where um, some of his disciples see the kingdom of God in power. As I said, up until now, it's been all about who Jesus is. Now it's about what the Messiah is going to do. Now it's about death and resurrection and suffering. And uh, Jesus talks about this all of the time. You'll see as we go through these next few chapters, this is what Jesus keeps talking about. He keeps saying, no, I'm going to have to die. I'm going to rise again. It's going to become very clear. The focus isn't on Jesus's might and power, even though he's the Messiah. And Jews were expecting a, a mighty man to come who was going to defeat the enemy and, and establish a political kingdom almost uh, back for Israel again. And that wasn't what the focus was going to be. Jesus said his focus is going to be on servanthood, on suffering, on sacrifice. So right now in this transition period, this transition period of the gospel, um, we see a glimpse of Jesus's glory. We see a, a glimpse of Jesus in his majesty and power. And three of Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John, they get to witness this firsthand. And uh, it can seem like a, a, a strange passage. It can be like, well, what, what, what's all this about? We've, we've seen Jesus heal. We've seen him deliver people. We've seen him preaching. And then suddenly he's gone up this mountain and these strange things are happening and these people are appearing out of nowhere in a cloud. And well, this seems a little strange. How does this fit in? Well, it fits in very well with what Mark is trying to explain about Jesus in his, in his gospel and about and for the disciples as well. Um, so he takes three of his disciples up. There's no explanation why he didn't take all 12 of his disciples. Interesting, he only takes three. Jesus never really seemed to be too worried about upsetting people or, uh, or, or, or having favorites. Um, sometimes we can think as a church, oh, it's all got to be very democratic or we've got to... But actually, Jesus didn't even do that. Jesus was just like, I'm going to take you three. Kind of wonder what the other nine felt. Oh, okay. Thanks, Jesus. See you later. <laughs> um, but, but what grace, actually? Let's notice, who, who did he take? He took Peter, James, and John. Well, the last thing that we've seen about Peter, yes, he said, you're the Messiah. But then when Jesus explained what the Messiah had to do, the Messiah has to die and suffer, Peter was the one who said, no, 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 no. This is never going to happen. You can't do that, Jesus. That's not going to happen. And Jesus had to rebuke Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan in response to what Peter had to say. Oh, that's pretty strong words. You would think after that, 
that, Pete, that Jesus might think, do you know what? I was going to pe- take Peter up the mountain, but he's not really getting it. I think I'll take Philip instead. We'll, we'll, we'll have James and John and Philip. That, that'll be it. <laughs> Peter, you've blown it. You know. He doesn't say that. He doesn't do that. He takes Peter with him. And that's so encouraging to us, isn't it? Because Jesus is so full of grace. His love for Peter didn't change, even though Peter totally misunderstood and got it wrong. And we need to know that God's love for us doesn't change either. God's love for us doesn't shift when we mess up. Jesus calls us, he chooses us, he forgives us, he doesn't give up on us. It's the grace of God seen in so many areas of our life. So, Jesus, Peter, James, John, they go up the mountain. They're on their own. And it says, when they're up the top of the mountain, Jesus was transfigured before them. He was transfigured before them. Now, you might think, well, what does that word mean? He was transfigured. What does that mean? Well, the dictionary definition of the word transfigured means to transform into something more beautiful. So he was transformed into something more beautiful before them. Now, remember, as a human being, there was nothing particularly attractive about Jesus. Isaiah 53 talks about Jesus, and it says, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So Jesus wasn't some attractive uh, person, and we can have kind of the movie images uh, and, the, and the paintings of Jesus uh, in our minds, kind of like this one, um, if you can see that. This kind of attractive figure, you know, kind of sultry-looking um, you know, which, oh, yeah, I can see why people were attracted to Jesus. The Bible says that wasn't what Jesus looked like. In fact, people have done some sort of research to, to try and figure out, well, what might Jesus have actually looked like? No one really knows what Jesus looked like. But they're saying, well, what did Jews of the day look like? What was, what was typical of people? It's more likely Jesus looked something like that, um, that kind of thing. Nothing that's going to stand out to anyone. No one's saying that is a picture of Jesus, <laughs> but that's more likely than that. <laughs> okay, um, we can have these images of what of what Jesus looked like, but uh, but he he wasn't a celebrity. He wasn't someone like that. Isaiah goes on to say he was one from whom people hide their faces. One from whom people hide their faces. So. Even, even, you know, oh, why, why would we look at him? There's nothing at all that was attractive about Jesus as a, as a human being. Philippians 2, uh, verse 6 to 8, talks about what Jesus did because he gave up his glory. He gave up the equality, his very godliness. He didn't take advantage of it. He didn't take advantage of it. But Paul says, who being in very nature God, Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. You see what he's, what he's doing? Jesus, could have, Jesus has existed before uh, time with the Father and the Spirit. He could have come and he could have said, well, I'm God, so I'm going to use everything that I've got as God. But no, he didn't do that. He gave up that. He said, I'm not going to use that to my own advantage. Instead, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, 
even death on a cross. Jesus is, is being made in human likeness. He didn't use his godliness to his advantage. So there was nothing about him that was going to necessarily attract people to him. He's not going to walk down the street and people go, oh, who's that guy there? We need to follow him. We need to know more about him. In fact, more likely people are going to turn their faces from him and say, oh, I don't, want, I don't want anything to do with him. There's nothing attractive about him. So when Jesus goes up the mountain with his three, three friends, suddenly he's transformed. Suddenly he's transformed with the beauty and majesty of God. He's transfigured, and his clothes become a dazzling white. It says whiter than anyone could bleach them. Suddenly, the godliness, the glory of Jesus is being revealed to these three men. And there he is. And suddenly, as well as that, he's having a conversation there with Elijah and with Moses. And you're like, what? What's going on here? Where have Elijah and Moses come from? We've gone up the mountain, there's just the four of us, and suddenly Elijah and Moses, were they up there all the time? And, and uh, they were dead? What's going on? It can seem very strange. Why are Elijah and Moses going up there? W what's all this about? It doesn't seem like that fits. Why, why are they there? Jewish readers would have understood a little more about it. And if we know our Old Testament, well, maybe we do too. Because the whole of this passage would have reminded people about Moses. And Moses went up Mount Sinai. He went up Mount Sinai. That's where he received the law uh, and the Ten Commandments. And uh, he, he had been talking with God. And God had been telling Moses um, that he was going to lead his people into the promised land. And Moses had had this conversation with God. And he said, well, you know, well, are you going to go with us, God? And God said, well, yes, I will go with you. And Moses said, well, you better go with us because if you don't go with us, I don't want to go. I'm not going to lead these people and without you because otherwise we're no different to anyone else. We're just a group of people who are wandering about. And, but, but if you go with us, God, and God says, well, it's okay, I will go with you. And at that point, Moses says, okay, God, now show me your glory. Show me your glory. He wants to see God's glory. Now, Moses had got God's word. Moses had been talking to God. Moses knew what God was asking him to do. It wasn't as though Moses had never had anything to do with God before. He'd got the command of God. He'd got something to hold on to. He'd even got the promise of God, I will go with you. But Moses still said, okay, but God, show me your glory. He wanted something else. He wanted to know something. He wanted to experience God for himself. He wanted to see something of the glory of God. And God says, and you can read all about this in Exodus 33, God says that he could see something of his glory, but he couldn't see him face to face. He said, if you see me face to face, you will not live because of my holiness and my awesomeness and my majesty. It's just too bright. It's like looking at the sun. You can't just stare at the sun and, and, and get away with it. You'll go blind. And it's like, my glory is too much for you. You won't be able to look at my face and live. So he said, you can hide away in the cleft of a rock and I will pass you by and you'll kind of just see the back of me as I pass by. Now, whatever that means, it means Moses saw something of God's 
glory. And that's what he did. And we, and we see that Moses was in the cleft of the rock and God passed by and Moses saw something of the glory of God. And it affected Moses. It affected Moses. When he came down from the mountain in Exodus 34, it says, lost it. It says, with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he wasn't even aware himself that his face was radiant because he'd spoken with the Lord. His face was glowing. It was gleaming. It was bright. There was something that had affected him because he'd encountered the presence of God. He'd encountered the presence of God. That's Moses. Now, Elijah, he experienced something very similar from God. Up the same mountain, actually, Mount Sinai, um, or it's sometimes known as Mount Horeb. It's the same mountain. And uh, Elijah's story is this. He had just defeated the prophets of Baal. This is a great passage if you want to read a really exciting passage in 1 Kings, I think, chapter 17, um, where Moses is challenging the prophets of Baal to see who is the true God. And the prophets of Baal are, 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 are chanting and shouting and trying to get their God to set fire to this altar. And then Moses eventually says, oh, and he starts taunting them. And, and, uh, and then he, he throws water over his altar and then calls on God. And God comes down and consumes the fire. And they defeat the prophets of Baal. It's an amazing passage showing the power of God. But right after that, Elijah goes in a very, very dark place. He, he gets so depressed. Ahab, the king's wife, Jezebel, she's pursuing him. She's threatening to kill him. And, and Elijah runs for his life, and he gets suicidal. He says, I might as well not even be alive. Well, there's only me left. He gets very negative about everything. You can read all about this in uh, 1 Kings 18, 1 Kings 19. Um, and he gets to a very, very low point. And eventually, God, God feeds him, and then God leads him to a mountain. He leads him to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, and God speaks with him. And Elijah stands on the mountain, and again, he stands in a cave, and it says God passed by. God, God comes in a fire and in a, in a mountain, but it says, and in, a, in an earthquake, and it says God's not in those things. God's not in the fire. God's not in... The earthquake, those things happen, but then there's a gentle whisper, and God is in that. God passes by, and God restores Elijah. And Elijah just stands at the mouth of the cave, and he covers his face with a cloak, because again, the glory of God is just too awesome and majestic for him to experience fully. But he's restored by that. It restores him. And he ends up going and he goes down the mountain and he can continue his ministry and he ends up uh, then getting Elisha and he passes on the mantle to Elisha. But Elijah needed that restoration from God. Now, he just experienced this great victory. It's not as though he'd not known anything of God's power. He'd known God's power in his life, but very quickly he'd got to that place. And, and we can get like that, can't we? We were even, that's what we were praying into this morning even. We can get to a point where we've known God in our life. We've known things happen. But we get to a point where we're like, oh, this is just too difficult. I, I'm just overwhelmed by everything that's going on in my life. So these two men had encountered the glory of God on Mount Sinai. And they were both changed. They were strengthened. Moses knew 
that he wasn't going to face the challenges he had ahead. He wasn't going to face it alone. And his face is shining. There's a glory, and he's, and he's reflecting the glory of God. That's why Moses' face was shining. It's, like the, it's, like, it's a bit like the moon reflects the sun. For those of you who are scientific, you will know that the moon does not have any light of its own. The moon doesn't shine. The moon reflects the sun's light. If you're not scientific, then you may have learned something today. Um, <laughs> the moon is just reflecting the light of the sun. And that's what's happened with Moses here. He's, his face is reflecting something of the glory of God, something of the light of God. But Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's shining and his whole being is shining. All his clothes are shining, not just his face. He's not shining because he's reflecting the glory of God. He's shining because he is God. He is God. He's not just reflecting God's glory. Hebrews chapter 1 says, The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his, of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He radiates it. It comes from within him. That's who Jesus is. He's God. So he's not just reflecting God. He's showing the glory of God. And it would have been an awesome sight to see. It would have been incredibly awesome for those three. And scary too. Because Moses wasn't allowed to see the glory of God because he wouldn't live. Elijah wasn't allowed to see the glory of God. He had to cover his face. But here, Peter, James, and John are seeing something of the holiness of God in Jesus. And the passage says Peter doesn't even know what to say because they're all so frightened. And here's Jesus, glorious and radiant, and he's talking with the two men who've encountered and experienced the glory of God for themselves. They've all experienced it for themselves this, this before. So yes, these disciples, they've just discovered the truth. They've just discovered the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. But now they're finding out what it really means for Jesus to be the Son of God. And yes, they're finding out it means he's going to have to suffer and he's going to have to die. But they're seeing something of who he is. It's like it's being revealed to them. Up until now, he's been hidden. God's glory has been hidden in this kind of body which isn't very attractive, this face which isn't very attractive, where people are like, well, who is this guy? Well, surely he can't be God. I can't see that. He can't, can't be too special, but he's doing all these things. And suddenly, it's revealed to them. It's like, it's like the, the, the disguise comes off, and now they're seeing something of Jesus for who he really is. They're seeing his majesty. They're seeing his godliness. In a sense, it's a bit like they're getting a taste of heaven. A taste of heaven. We see a picture of it again in Revelation, in John's vision, in, in Revelation chapter 1, where John says, I saw someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnish. And his voice was like the sound of rushing water. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. That's the vision that John gets of Jesus in, in Revelation. In the end times, he's seeing a foretaste of it, but he's seeing it here as well. There's something of, whew, this is the glory of God 
This is the glory of Jesus that we're going to see in the future. And so experiencing this for Peter and James and John is so different from just knowing something in your head. It's so different from just hearing teaching, from hearing truth, from knowing, from reading something about God. They're actually seeing it, the glory of God for themselves. Because Moses knew in his head that God was with him, but he wanted to see God's glory. Elijah had known that power, but he needed to know the glory of God's presence with him. He needed to know his love and his tenderness and restoration. And Peter, James, and John, they were heading with Jesus towards the cross. And eventually they would suffer the same things themselves. And Jesus had already said that to them. This is what was ahead of them. They needed strength. They needed something to cope with what was coming in the future because it wasn't all going to be amazing back down at the bottom of the mountain. But they needed to experience something of God's encouragement and the glory of God which was going to sustain them. They would got to know him in a new way. And so Peter says to Jesus, it's good to be here. Let's set up three shelters. Let's put up three shelters. Let's put up one for you and one for Elijah and one for Moses. Now, a few people have said, uh, or well, maybe Peter's saying, let's build a, a tabernacle. Maybe it's to do with the holy presence of God and we need someone to intervene. Uh, maybe. Uh, but actually, there's no need for that. There was going to be no need for, for priests to intervene between us and God because Jesus himself is now the mediator. He was going to be the mediator between us and God. He's the tabernacle. He's the temple. He's the high priest. It's not needed anymore. I actually think that what Peter was saying here was as simple as this. He was just saying, Jesus, this is so amazing. Like, we have never known anything like this before. This is incredible. Do we really need to go back? Let's just stay here. Like, this is what it's all about. I mean, we, we've lived our lives for however many years, and we've worked, and we've done this. But God, this is what it's about. Let's Let's just stay here. We, the other guys will be fine. We'll, we'll, we'll just stop here. Because they were experiencing really what it truly means to worship, what it truly means to be in God's presence. They were encountering God in that way. And then they, and then they, they encounter it some more. The cloud of God's presence comes down. A number of times in the Bible, God's presence comes in the form of a cloud. And, uh, and then they hear the audible voice of, Jesus, of God, the Father, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. You're going to take note of that, aren't you? <laughs> you hear that? Just can you imagine? It's like, woo, what else now? We've gone up. Jesus is glowing. There's these Elijah and there's Moses. There's a cloud coming down. There's a voice coming from heaven. It's like, whoo, this is incredible. So, so Peter wants to stay there. And let's, and let's not to be too quick to criticize Peter for what he said. Because some people do. Some people are like, oh, well, of course, Peter doesn't realize you can't stay up there. You've got to go down the mountain. You've got a life to live. You can't stay on this mountaintop experience. Look, Peter's actually right. It was amazing. It, it was good for them to be there. It, you know, it's not all about getting back to reality, oh, well, life's not like that, really. We've got to get back to reality. 
This is the ultimate reality. This is the ultimate reality. If you take our lives for eternity going back, our lives are such a small part of it, and 99.9999% of our lifetime will be this. It will be experiencing Jesus in his glory, where there is no sickness and suffering and pain and death and all those other things which make life so difficult. It won't be there anymore. So let's not think this is reality. That's reality. Reality, us before Jesus. It's the ultimate reality, us and God. So it's not just about getting on with our lives and, and oh, well, there's not really time to make time for Jesus and worship. We'll be with glo- Jesus in glory in this way. We need to hold on to that. We need to hold on to that in all of our struggles as well. Because on the mountaintop, it's just, it's just them and Jesus and, and Elijah and Moses for a while. And it's good to be away from all the noise. It's good to be away from all the distractions. It's good to be away from the hustle and bustle of the crowds. And isn't it good for us too when we sense Jesus together, when we, when we take time out, when we say, do you know what, I'm going to leave all this. Yes, I've got a lot of work to do. Yes, there's snow to be dug out. Yes, there's things to be done. But I'm just going to take time and I'm just going to get before God. And I'm just going to put myself where I can be in his presence. And I'm going to spend time worshiping him. And suddenly we sense Jesus together and he comes and he meets us by his Holy Spirit as he's done already this morning and as I believe he'll, he'll continue to do. And we sense Jesus in our, in our worship. Matthew 18 says, where two or three come together, Jesus says, where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. And the Bible makes it clear that it's important to gather together in God's presence. It's not, it's not just an individual experience. We, we can often talk in, in the West about having a personal relationship with Jesus. And there is something of that that is, that is right. But, but the Bible far more talks about a corporate relationship with Jesus. Us as God's church coming together and glorifying him together and worship him together. Things are possible when the church gathers together and we encounter the manifest presence of God that aren't possible when we gather on our own, when we're just on our own. There's something about gathering together. So yes, it's possible to to, to listen to podcasts and to listen to worship on our own at home and we think we don't even need to to brave minus 25 degrees. We don't even need to to dig out the, the driveway. We can just watch on the internet. But we'll miss out. Because there's something about this that God has ordained that is different and is special. And it's where he comes by his manifest presence. And it's not just Sunday mornings. It, it can be when we gather in any situation. It can be in our life groups. Or it will be in our prayer meetings and tag tonight or times like that. Because as we gather, God meets with us by his Holy Spirit. And we know something of his glory. And before then, we can say, oh, well, yes, well, I know the Bible. I've learned my Bible. I've done my memory verses. I, I, I know Scripture pretty well. And I know God says he's with me. But, but when we gather together, we can know because we sense him. He manifests himself. His glory comes. Sometimes it's in a different extent to other extents. And we can't control God. And we can't say what he's going to do. But we know he says he'll do that when we meet and worship. And the Holy Spirit's been poured on us now. 
the Holy Spirit now has been poured out. And that wasn't the case for Moses or Elijah. And even for the disciples at this point, the Holy Spirit hadn't yet been poured out. So they hadn't got that ability to just come and receive from God by his Holy Spirit, to know him in the power of the Spirit. But we have. We have. We can know God's presence like that. So yes, if someone said, oh, Mark, it's so good to be here. Let's just, let's just set up some tents. Let's, let's order some pizza in. Let's, uh, let's, let's organize some food to come in. And there's, I'm sure there's rooms. In fact, there's a load of bedrooms here. There's a lot of beds. We'll just stay here. We'll do, we've already got them. We'll stay in these rooms and we'll just worship God and, and we'll not go back to our work. Well, yeah, but we, that isn't possible. We can't do that. But yeah, of course it's good for us to be here. Of course it's good for us to gather. We can't stay here all the time. Sometimes we, we, we get things skewed as well. We can slip into a, a worldly way about thinking about things. We can, we can complain. Oh, man, so many meetings with the church. How many more meetings do we need to have? As though it's some kind of staff meeting with work where we're going to have to sit through, you know, which is just dull and going through procedures or policies or whatever it might be. Um, oh, oh, well, why do we worship so much when we get together? This is why we worship so much when we get together. Because that's what we do as a church. Because we're not just gathering as people, we're gathering and we're saying, God, will you meet with us? And when we worship, that's when God comes. That's when God comes, when we worship him. So why would we often gather together and not worship him? Why would we just come to talk about him? We don't just want to talk about Jesus. We want to know Jesus. We want to meet with him. We want to experience him. We want to have his spirit poured out into us. We can so easily miss the point. There's no greater thing than encountering Jesus. No greater thing. Mission takes second place to worshiping God. Someone once said, mission only exists because worship doesn't. The reason we go on mission, the reason we tell people about Jesus is so there's more people who will gather and worship him because he deserves worship. And then he pours out his spirit to us. You know, life is tough. Life is tough. We need strengthening. We need encouraging. We need to be able to face the struggles of each day. We might go to school and school can be tough. School can be tough with all sorts of challenges. Work can be tough. If we don't have a job, it can be tough. Family life can be tough. Marriage can be tough. Parenting can be tough. Life can be tough. The, the weather can be tough. There's all sorts of things that can make life tough. And we need strengthening. We need encouraging. The disciples had been with Jesus all the time, but they, they found it tough. They got hungry. They got tired. They were worn out. They were sick of the crowds. And now they've got this time just away with Jesus. Just to, just to encounter him in a new way. Just to worship him. Moses needed it. Elijah needed it. The disciples needed it. We need it. We need strengthening in worship so we can be encouraged about our future. So we can have hope. Because the future for the disciples involved suffering and a cross. And actually Jesus says if we're following him, we've got to take up our cross, whatever that might be. It may not be a physical death, although it may be for his sake. 
but there's a taking up of his cross. And Jesus is going to talk about that more and more. And even on the way down the mountain, he's talking about that with his disciples. There's a reality to that. There's a difficulty to that. But we've got to encounter God's love and compassion in our suffering as we do that. We need to know God's glory so we're confident in all we're going into. Like Elijah, we need sustaining and encouraging when we're fearful and when we're depressed. And we need to know, not just in our heads, God's love, but we need to experience it. There's such a difference in experiencing it. I love going out um, to restaurants. I love trying out new food. For our 15th wedding anniversary, 10 years ago, we got to go down to London and uh, we went to Gordon Ramsay's, one of Gordon Ramsay's restaurants. It was like a Michelin star. They're the top restaurants, you know, you get these stars. And it was like this amazing restaurant and we'd read all about it and I'd looked it up on the internet and, and booked it. You have to book it, ex you know, like a month in advance because it just books out and all of these things. And we'd got it all set out and uh, we'd, we'd I say we read about it, We'd got, we could go on their website, we could look at the menu, we could decide what we might want to eat when we're there. We knew all of those things before we went there. But when we went, we experienced it. We savored it, we tasted it. And it was exciting knowing about it, and there was something good about, this is good, look at that, look at that picture. That's amazing, can you believe they do that? But then it's there in front of you, and then you're eating it, and it was so good. And we could have said, well, this is amazing food. Let's just stay here and eat every day. Not practical. But it was good that we'd eaten there. And as we come before God, we can experience the things that we know to be true, that we've read about, that we've heard about, that we believe even. You know, we can, we, there's, there's the creeds, we were actually potentially going to sing some of them this morning. And it's like, I believe this, and I believe in God the Father, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. And, I be and we can say all of those things, but we believe. But then when we experience it, it's so different. I, think, I know I believe it, because I know it. Because I've felt it, because I've experienced it. We don't just go on feelings, but when we know it, then we can face the challenges of our life. What was that first song we sang, Praise is Rising? There was that line in it. When we see him, we find strength to face the day. In his presence, all our fears are washed away. That's what happens. When we see him, when we see him as he, we, he is, in his presence, oh, it changes everything. It changes everything. And we know that one day we're going to experience that forever. Even though we have to go down the mountain, even though we have to leave here and face whatever it is that we have to face, we can do it. And we come in weakness, and we come saying, God, I, we can't do this without you. We need you so much. We need you so much. We can't live our life. We can't do this. We can't keep going. We can't follow you without knowing you like this. And we come in weakness, and God pours his love out for us by his spirit. Sometimes when people are struggling in life, they, they say, oh, I, I can't face coming to church. And I get so sad. I kind of understand it. I kind of understand it. But this is where we meet God. If you're struggling in life, this is where we've got to be. And, and it's okay. And we don't have to pretend. We don't have to pretend. 
We can be mourning and grieving and suffering and have had the worst news that week and, and in financial difficulties and health issues and whatever it might be. And we can be in bits and we can be here and we can be in tears. And it doesn't matter because do you know what? Next week it's someone else. We're all going to be there at one point or other. But we're here and we're just saying, God, I need you. And he'll come. He'll come. He'll meet with us. We worship God in our frailty and helplessness. And our faces will shine with the reflected glory of God. These three disciples, they were so mightily impacted by it. You just read some of their letters that they write. Or the Gospels. John wrote the Gospel, his own Gospel, John. Right at the start, he says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And then he says, We've seen his glory. So, yeah, he made his dwelling among us in someone who didn't look very attractive or anything. But John's saying, we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. He's like, man, you want to know this, Jesus? Peter, he writes in 2 Peter 1, we didn't follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. In other words, we're not just making things up. We're not crafting something and making it trying to be persuading. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard that voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. <laughs> this is stuck in Peter's mind. This isn't Mark making something up, you know. This is, Peter's writing letters about it and he's... Chapter 1, hey, you want to know about this? This isn't just made up. This is real. We heard God's voice on the mountain. We saw his glory. I've had times, just a few times, when I've encountered the presence of God in an unusually powerful way. I mean, we've encountered it this morning. But there's been times when I've encountered it in an unusually powerful way. And honestly, it's incredible. It stays with you. It stays with you. I pray each of us can have times like that. One time, Debbie and I, we, were, we went to a church meeting. God was just so powerfully at work. And you could just sense the presence of God walking through the door. And we were there, and the meeting went on and on, and it got to 11 o'clock. We'd started at 7.30. It got to going on 11 o'clock. And we were pretty tired. And we went, we ought to go home, I guess. So we went home, and we made a cup of tea, and we sat there. And then we were like, well, should we go, should we go to bed? I don't know. And then we were, we said, it's probably still going on. And we were, it probably is. Well, should we go back? And we went back, <laughs> 11 o'clock at night. We walked through the door and it's like, woohoo, it's God still here. It was like we carried on for another hour, an hour and a half. Now, most times you wouldn't, you'd have a church meeting, you wouldn't be like saying 11 o'clock at night, let's go back. So even then we do a count, there's times when it's just, I remember that day. I'll always remember that day. I long for more days like that day. I long for days like that with us. Because there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. We need these glimpses of God's glory and the grace that he gives to us.
Even coming down the mountain, the disciples were confused. And Jesus says, don't say anything till I've risen from the dead. And the disciples are like, well, what does he mean, risen from the dead? What? Well, is he still saying he's got to die? We've just seen him in majesty. He's God. Why is he saying he's got to die? And, and we've just seen Elijah. And surely Malachi prophesies about Elijah coming. And that's going to be when everything changes. And so, uh, Jesus, why do you still need to die? And Elijah's come. And Jesus is saying, well, okay, yeah, John the Baptist has come. He's an Elijah-like figure. They've killed him. I'm going to die too. Basically, they couldn't figure it all out. That's what it comes down to. They're still struggling on the way down the mountain to figure it all out. We can struggle to figure it all out. We don't know why our life's going like the way it is. We don't know why God calls us to do what he does. We see glimpses of him in glory, and then life is still tough, like it was for the disciples. Nothing's changed for those disciples in one way. Everything's changed for another. But, but we just need to savor those moments and see Jesus as he is. They needed to see Jesus transfigured. We can be too quick to move on from God's presence sometimes. And we can be too quick to say, oh, let's do this or let's do that. The passage says, Peter didn't know what to say because they were so frightened. But you notice he still said something. <laughs> That's Peter. <laughs> Oh, man, so scared. I don't know what to say. Well, I'll just, how, how about we build some tents? <laughs> it's like, oh. <laughs> don't say anything, Peter. You don't need to say anything. Ecclesiastes 5 says, Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven. You're on earth, so let your words be few. Sometimes we need to just say nothing. Sometimes we need to just enjoy the presence of God. We can't, Peter was trying, to, he was trying to control things. He was trying to take charge. Who knows what he was trying to do? He was trying to say, this is what we should do. We can't do that. We can't, we can't bottle the manifest presence of God. We can't predict it. We can't prolong it. It's all about God. We can't control it. Let's not try and control God. But we want to know his glory. We want to seek after it. We want to pray for it. We want to expect it as we gather. And we tell God how keen we are to welcome him. And so we sing songs like, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And, and you think, well, why are we doing that? Surely he knows. No, we're saying, God, you're wel- do what you want to do. You do what you want to do. It's your church. You are God. We're your people. We're just thrilled to be here. And we want to know more of you. And that's worth more than anything. We can do so much as a church. We can do activities and programs and missions and have strategies and plan buildings. Do you know what? In comparison to the presence of God and knowing God, it's nothing. This is what it's about. Let's keep coming and actively longing to meet with God. eh? Angela, do you want to come back up with the band? We're just going to take some more time and just worship. Because that really is the only response that we can have. And let's come and let's expect that God will want to come and meet with us as we do. Should we stand together and pray? Father God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you we know so much. We thank you for your word. We thank you for times when we've heard from you, times when you've answered prayers. But Lord God, more than anything else, we desire your glory. 
we desire your presence amongst us. Lord, we are in need of you. We are weak. So many of us at times just think, how can we go on? And Lord, the only way we can go on is these times with you and knowing your presence with us and your sustaining. So even as we worship now, Lord, we just pray, show us more of your glory. Holy Spirit, pour out your presence amongst us. Move amongst us. Encourage us. Strengthen us. Comfort us. Lead us on, Lord. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Let's worship.